When you live to ticket before you kick it, it's pretty important that you power your adventure with the right nutrition. Not just when you decide to take on the biggest physical and mental challenge of your life, like I did retracing the 1928 Tour de France, but also as a part of everyday living. Working overtime on a double shift, running the kids all over town to their sporting events, adding a few extra miles to your weekly hike, or getting sleep deprived with a hectic travel schedule. I'm proud to announce Bucket Nutrition is now an official sponsor of our podcast and just for you, giving a 10% discount on all Bucket Nutritional products. Go to Amazon.com and use promo code Bucket10, that's Bucket with an IT, 10, for a 10% discount on Bucket Nutritional products. Great tasting, high performance nutrition to help you take it before you kick it. Little does this CBS executive know that the pitch he's about to hear will change everything. Gen Maynard hears a lot of pitches for shows, but this one is different. It isn't a scripted drama or comedy series or a traditional game show. There's nothing quite like it on TV, and it doesn't fit into any existing genre. But he knows one thing. He loves it. It's an idea that will turn into a reality series set on an island and ultimately transform the primetime landscape on broadcast television and usher in a new generation of unscripted programming that will catapult his career. I knew I couldn't go back. Can you just put it out there? She said you've got less than a year to live. Just dug even Luck deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses swerve off the predictable road and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. I was the youngest exec at the time at CBS. So for me, I came from it from a social psychology background. My, my, the reason I got into television, aside from just loving good TV, was because I wanted to figure out how to get the maximum viewers to come watch a show. I was really fascinated by what it took to get huge ratings and, and how you got people from all walks of life to have a common experience together. Gen Maynard is the Senior Executive Vice President of Alternative Programming for CBS Television Studios. He's the maverick who has helped develop some of reality television's biggest hits. Early in his career, Gen championed and brought to life the first competition reality show for network television, a mega hit called Survivor. Gen also developed and oversaw the multi-Emmy award-winning The Amazing Race, the U.S. version of Big Brother, America's Next Top Model, as well as Kid Nation, Power of Ten, and Million Dollar Password. As a drama executive, he helped to develop CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, Judging Amy, and The District. The list of successful shows goes on and on. There's no doubt Maynard has a keen eye for what viewers like. Survivor, The Amazing Race, Big Brother, and Top Model are among the longest-running reality TV franchises in the world. I caught up with Gen just after the premiere of an unusual reboot version of the iconic 90s teen series Beverly Hills 90210, called BH90210, which he developed and sold to Fox, and Kids Say the Darndest Things, starring Tiffany Haddish, which he sold to ABC. Once again, taking a risk which ultimately paid off for this TV executive who clearly has the Midas touch. Okay, I am with Gen Maynard. It is, uh, we are in Los Angeles, California, and we're gonna have a chat about reality television. Uh, okay. So we've, we've actually begun? Well, we j it's very relaxed. All right. 
So, I mean, you know, we could start wherever we want to start. <laughs> Did you watch the Emmys last night? We could start with that. No. Okay. Uh, were you, are you aware of who won the different categories at the Emmys last sort night? Sort of aware, but I have to be honest, I hadn't even heard of some of the shows. Well, this, is, this brings up an interesting point, which is there was a time where if you worked in, in television, you absolutely knew, knew every show that was on television, and, and now... But more importantly, there, there was a time where if you lived in America, you knew every single show right. that was on television, and certainly everyone that got nominated. Right. And now I, I suspect if I don't know some of the shows that most of America did, and I think that's one reason the ratings tanked. Right, and this, this to me is a big question, which is how long are we going to continue to make so much content which seems to be increasing every single day, how how long is this going to be sustainable to be pouring all these millions of dollars into shows that get spread out of mm -hmm. an audience or that where, where the numbers are just a minuscule amount of, say, a show like Dallas? I mean, I think that's a bigger question than just the Emmys. I think with the Emmys, they reflect... Look, there's great work being honored on the Emmys. There's no doubt about it. But they reflect a taste that tends to be more niche in terms of the audience size that the shows appeal to so there's also great work that's still done on broadcast in the old days you saw a lot of broadcast shows um, getting nominated as well yeah and then when HBO and Showtime came along you started seeing it all go to them and now that there's a bunch of H HBOs and Showtimes in the form of other premium cable networks and streamers you know they're all sort of going that way and so I think it's not a surprise then that the country that watches maybe shows that are not as favored um, on, on broadcast TV and some of the bigger rated shows, look at The Walking Dead, for instance, um, and see relatively how few nominations it gets relative to other shows that have much smaller audience. It's so interesting. And, and uh, I'm, I'm interested to know the rules that the networks are playing by and the rules that streaming is, are playing by. They're two complete, it's like they're on they're in different universes and yet they're all being judged. The content's still being judged on the same in the same way. Mm -hmm. Seems totally unfair. I think it's been that way for many years, though. It's just, uh, I, th I think there's a, there's a tendency to gear subject matter towards certain areas that perhaps a lot of the country doesn't necessarily identify with. And so if you can find ways to appeal to all 50 states, that to me is still the most exciting thing that t television can do. You know, to get people who are from different walks of life to all come together the way in the early years uh, Survivor or The Amazing Race did, which is to say you had people watching a show and having comments, conversations with each other where in their ordinary lives they may never actually, you know, talk to each other. Right, so... Um, so that, that to me is the power of television. The, the, the water cooler conversation where wherever, whatever walk of life people are in, that around the water cooler they'll literally have a conversation about that show that they saw, like well, yeah. Survivor did. Well, Survivor and Amazing Race, but I think it's more than water cooler. It's, you know, you look at Amazing Race and it features, to me, the show is always fundamentally about the effect of sleep deprivation and exhaustion on pairs of people and the relationships that we as viewers can empathize with. So that to me was sort of the, what the show is fundamentally about, even more than travel. Um, and so, you know, when you think of a mother-daughter or a couple that, you know, in our first season, we had a couple that was separated yes. um, with a one-year-old child. Frank um, and Margarita. Yep. yep. And then they came back together af after the show, um, which was kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and we've had couples break up on the show as well. Um, 
But that's something that everybody can relate with no matter what walk of life you come from. Right. So suddenly there's like universals that are being, you know, dramatized uh, in these shows via good storytelling and people from all walks of life can connect with that even if their daily lives may seem to reflect little in common. We, so you had that we had such a broad spectrum of people like like you said I've I've seen a quote of yours saying before where you can bring people who are voting right or left or people who are old or young or gay or straight we had the guidos on season 1 of amazing race perhaps the first openly gay couple uh, on television mm -hmm. certainly network television and it was groundbreaking what what was taking place and certainly there were some people who were you know didn't necessarily agree that we should be doing that but there were more people who thought well okay this is part of change and, right right um, so I'm I, I want to go back to uh, talking about survivor because survivors being recognized as being in in network television along with a show like, say, Cops, which came out of a writer's strike, if I'm not mistaken, um, a show that really changed the landscape of television. Mm -hmm. And this was a show that was pitched around the various networks and was passed on. It was a show that people could not see the potential in. But uh, there was this guy called Gen Maynard who saw the potential for <laughs> the show. I'm not going to keep a straight face. But I'm just interested when everybody else was saying no, and I believe this was in 1999, somewhere around there. What was it that you saw in the pitch? What was it that you heard? What was it you saw and heard right, from? So a couple things. One is I sometimes uh, teach classes at USC Film School or other film schools. And I always like telling the story of how at CBS, when you were a junior executive, and I was at the time a manager of drama development, which is the lowest level executive job that 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 existed back then um, our peers at other networks all had offices and even assistants and at CBS being a little cheaper than all the other networks we had cubicles and no assistants and my cubicle was closest to the reception desk in the bathrooms so every day I would get multiple questions as to where the bathroom was and you're sitting here complaining thinking gee all our friends have assistants and fancy offices and we're sitting out here but if it weren't for that I wouldn't have uh, come across Survivor because it was the assistant sitting across from my cubicle in another cubicle who um, said, hey, again, I have this guy on the phone I know from my Disney days, and his name was Conrad Riggs. He was back then Mark Burnett's manager, and yep. he had been a business affairs guy at Disney, so the assistant there knew him, and he's like, he has some show, then I don't know what to do with it. Can you just talk to him? So I'm like, sure. And then he, uh, Conrad, got on the phone and said, you know, we're trying to pitch this show and it's kind of hard and people are not, you know, really taking it seriously. But, you know, it's basically a, a show where we're going to shoot sort of doc style, you know, 16 people and we're going to put them on a deserted island and make them fend for themselves. And one by one, they're going to vote each other off until there's a winner. <laughs> And I remember at the time thinking, wow, like, first of all, the power of a pitch that you can say in a couple of sentences that is really thought provoking yeah. um, is rare. It's rare to see. Um, and the second thing is that as a junior executive, I watched real world and I watched road rules, you know, and I was the youngest exec at the time at CBS. So for me, I came from it from a social psychology background. My my. The reason I got into television, aside from just loving good TV, was because I wanted to figure out how to get the maximum viewers to come watch a show. I was really fascinated by what it took to get huge ratings and, and how you got people from all walks of life 
to have a common experience together. Um, and I think what was cool about that concept is I sat there thinking, this is what I kind of always hoped we could do is like, how do you do the real world, but make it into something that isn't just for young kids. Something huge. Exactly. And for years, like before that point, if you think about it, cable was always stealing from broadcast and taking shows and then they would make the shows more niche for, you know, be sexier, maybe more violent, a little more extreme or about a smaller group of people that maybe not everyone's going to connect with. Um, and they would tell those stories. Um, and that's cool and all. But I think this was the first time that broadcast was stealing from cable and taking something that was smaller and, and making it, it bigger. Um, so for me, when I heard that one line thing in my little cubicle, you know, I didn't know in that moment that I should be thankful I was still in a cubicle, but I sort of took it and ran with it because as a concept, I just thought it touched so many different tentpoles. It's, it's a show that would be different for CBS, but I thought would bring a broad group of people together. You can have old people and young people and rural people and urban people and, and you know, all different spectrums of society and everyone would have someone they'd connect with. Um, and that to me was was what broadcast TV at its best, you know, could be. So some years before CBS tried to become a younger new network very quickly. This was before Les Moonves came to CBS and they programmed shows like Central Park West, which at the time I th think they spent more money promoting that show than any show in history. Um, and it skewed very young because they were trying to be like Fox was and the show totally bombed. Um, and I don't think it's because the show was bad or anything. In fact, I watched every episode and, and, and actually liked the show. I think it's just that CBS had a certain audience and that audience wasn't going to watch the show. And the people who were going to watch that show weren't watching CBS. So when Leslie came to CBS, he sort of moved things a little bit back, realizing that like a tanker ship, an oil tanker or something, you have to start turning it many miles before you get to right. the actual corner. Yep. Um, and he put on a lot of shows like Cosby and, and Nash Bridges with Don Johnson, like familiar stars back then to get, get the core audience back. But what Survivor was, was that show that wouldn't alienate the core viewers, but was different enough to make new viewers to say, gee, what's that? And come. So like for a whole lot of reasons, that's why I was like, I, I got really excited about the potential of that show. If I'm, if I'm not it's a long answer. So. No, no, it's good. If I'm not mistaken, the show was actually pitched at CBS and then it was passed on, but then it came in a second time. Is that correct? correct? Yeah. Yeah, because I didn't know that at the time, but later on, I realized it had been passed. It passed on by a totally different department. So when Conrad called again, he was trying to like ha have another go, like give. Another well, he didn't say anything about that part of it, but, right? <laughs> but uh, but I thought it was really cool, so I brought him and and Mark in and and um, met Mark and. Again, Mark's a great consummate salesman, and and yeah. and, um, and it only added to the excitement of this idea. So, Mark said it was unbelievable that I got another chance to pitch to CBS. This time, it was to Gen Maynard in the drama division. Gen immediately liked what he heard, and he took the idea to the CBS president, who was intrigued and wanted to hear the pitch in person. He was great at just making you imagine the potential of the show. Yes, by the way that he would explain the anecdotally what the stories could be. Um, he said it was uh, like Robinson Crusoe meets Gilligan's Island meets Lord of the Flies. That was his yeah, elevator yeah. pitch. It, it, I mean, it definitely was all those things. And, and as you will remember, I was being considered as the host of I know, of it came Survivor. down to you and, and, uh, and a certain other person. Yes, uh, uh, who I th believe got the job. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I remember sitting with Mark and him taking me through what the show, the potential of the show. Right. And I remember getting so excited 
in the room with him about what he was saying and just the idea that that it was going to be groundbreaking and the the but you know mark had a vision for what the show could be because it was a format that existed it was shot once in sweden it was such a um tiny little poorly produced show um that i never showed any of the footage internally because it would have been the quickest way to get everyone to say uh no we're not doing that yeah and that's where i think mark was really had a vision that took it to a whole different level yeah um and he was thinking more along the lines of a jerry bruckheimer movie um in terms of how this show could be produced um as opposed to a low costing small show that might have been done as an interesting experiment on cable but not necessarily been a big hit as as the show ended up being and i remember the night uh may 31st 2000 very well because it's my birthday and i got on a plane to go back to new zealand uh, for a trip and by the time i landed and and survivor had gone to air it had just exploded i mean it was just everybody was talking about it it just it struck that chord that you you were talking about um that must have been an incredible feeling to have yeah it was a cooler feeling the following week because the first week while we won the hour in total viewers who wants to be a millionaire still beat us in the demos oh i didn't know that and then the next week it flopped where where we beat them in the demos um and then we only went up from there and, and that was and the then, water cooler talk. Yeah, and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was the big hot show from the previous summer, and ABC put it against our first two airings of Survivor to, to blunt our, our you know, potential. Um, and I think their intention was to air it across Survivor, but after the two episodes and they realized that we were going to go way up um, and it would actually damage your franchise to keep it against us, they sort of retreated and pulled it away just to protect That's a that good show. feeling. But again, to have a show that brings everybody together and, and, you know, when we think of our final four in that first year oh, of Survivor, yeah. we had Richard Atch, who was the corporate trainer, who's gay, Susan Hawk, a truck driver, I think she's from Arkansas, uh, Rudy Bosch, who was a Navy SEAL, and Kelly Wigglesworth, who's a college student. And so it was like the perfect cross-section yeah. of America to have in your final four. You couldn't have written it better. You know, so we got very lucky. It's when, when you have a good show or a reality show where things are happening beyond your wildest dreams, it always feels like the reality gods are shining upon you. Yeah. So I think there was a lot of smarts and a lot of vision and a lot of great work that Mark Burnett and Craig Pillagin and, and a bunch of other people on the show put forward to do that. And a lot of people at CBS did to launch it. But the reality gods were definitely shining too because we got some pretty amazing stuff that you just couldn't have you know, written. And and now I, I I believe season forty or something is coming up. Uh, yeah, and and that was the question. A lot of people thought, oh, this is an interesting experiment. It will last once or twice, you know. But now it's I think one of the longest. Maybe I'm not sure if SVU might be longer. I'm not sure, but it's definitely one of the longest running. If up, not up the there with running. sixty minutes is you know? what, well, sixty minutes, minutes certainly. But as far as the primetime entertainment shows are, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a long time. A lot of people have been on that show. A lot of people. You you mentioned the final four, and one thing that I know you've been quoted as saying a lot is this idea of looking for authenticity, for looking for for people who are real in front of a a camera. Um, You've obviously got an eye for that. Why is that important, that that authenticity? We used to ask people in the very early years, at least, to rank in order what was the most important to them, the experience, the million dollars that they might win, or the fame or being on camera. 
Yes. You know, and in the beginning on both that and The Amazing Race, I think the experience always ranked number one. Um, you know, but as time goes on, clearly a lot of people are looking yeah. to be famous. And I don't think most of America really cares about the journey to be famous. That That's something people in Hollywood and, and certain, maybe New York and certain areas find interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of America, I think, just likes authentic people. And, you know, Hollywood sometimes doesn't really write to those people in the rest of the country um, because that's not m- their experiences. They've all gone to certain types of colleges and taught, been taught in certain kind of ways, so they come out with certain experiences that are very alike. And I think when we saw characters and they're real people, but on television they come off as characters like Susan Hawk or, yeah. or Rudy Bosch. It, it was like people in the country going, holy crap, that's me, or yeah. I know that person. You know, which which just opened the door to to you know the kinds of people we could feature on television and and how you could get the whole country behind you. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is people do want to see themselves reflected on television, and a lot of times they're just not seeing that it's because it's written, but you know, by a lot of people who live on either in New York or L.A. that they're they're like the coastal elite, I guess you could say, and they don't really know the person that's living in Zanesville, Ohio. They don't Correct. get those people. So when they see themselves, they're like, oh my God, that is me. That's right. my uncle, that's my father. And, and obviously on Amazing Race, we, we got that as well. So tell us that story again, because you were, you were there for, for Amazing Race as well. Right. Uh, how did so that- So I've been pitched versions of The Amazing Race probably three times before I got pitched this one by Bert Van Munster and um, the Bruckheimer organization. Um, and Every time I asked people, so where have you shot elsewhere in the world, particularly having gone through Survivor and, yeah. and seeing what kind of skill it took to really produce a show in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there were pirates on our island, literally, and, and our crew got chased by them with um, machetes at one point. You know, so it's not like just some, some little TV show that can go shoot anywhere and do yeah. it responsibly. Mark Burnett and the whole team and, you know, really knew what they were doing it's not a studio show in studio city where the temperature's at 69 degrees (laughs) it is it isn't that and where if you didn't get water on time it's the worst day you've ever had you know and everybody Um, is going out to the catering truck and complaining about the tacos or something exactly (laughs) so you know i i remember asking a lot of people so where have you shot them most of them have never shot out of the country yeah so they had this idea but they didn't have the foggiest clue how to do it um and burfett munsters his credit is shot in like I don't know, some ridiculous number of countries. I'm not sure there um, is in a place he hasn't shot in. Correct. Um, and in the middle of nowhere in, in these countries. Yes. So so at least I, I, I knew, okay, he had like, you know, the experience and, and, and knowledge of what it was, uh, what it means to be shooting in a third world country in the middle of nowhere that doesn't yep. have, you know, everything you need right at your disposal um, and how to interact with uh, different groups on behalf of these different countries so that was that was hugely valuable um, and I think he also had a vision as to what being in some of these areas under pressure would be like uh, for ordinary people um, so so I thought there was much more of a vision um, as well as the potential to uh, reach again a broad group of people because what was different about the show was that it was focusing on pairs of people yeah and we hadn't seen that yet and that relationship that re- connection between those people yeah and a lot of the reality shows that came right off of survivor if you recall were kind of rip-offs of survivor i mean mm-hmm. there was a show called boot camp on fox they would say they weren't a rip-off but you know again you're looking it, it's very similar the sa- same types of dynamics between people and what have you 
Um, and in the case of Amazing Race, it was something very different. So, so I think that appealed to me. Um, and that's that's why we went forward with it. And 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 then also just the the casting in season one was so fantastic. Speaking of authenticity, right? Um, Kevin well, and Drew, who, and 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 I think one of the sad parts. There's so many great things that have come out of reality television, but just speaking to the authenticity, uh, there's an innocence that was lost after Survivor and Amazing Race came out, where there was a different intent. Like Emily and Nancy, uh, uh, who were on season right. one. They just genuinely wanted that experience of traveling overseas and being a fish out of water. And now there's, it's, it's hard to find that reason for someone to be on the show just because they want that experience. Yeah, I think those people exist. It's just it's a, it's a bigger job. Them. You know, but Lynn Spielman, who cast both Survivor and The yes, Amazing Race, did an amazing job. Um, really deserves the credit for Absolutely. finding those people even when it did get tougher. Um, can you take us back again to day one of, of Amazing Race? Because uh, you and I uh, traveled from New York City uh, and we, we headed overseas to South Africa. Uh, that was the first mm -hmm, flight. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering what you recall from that that time, that, that nerves, what was going through your mind. Because it was a big, big undertaking. Yeah, I mean, Survivor was a huge undertaking, but when you're responsible for people and now you don't have the comfort of a closed set yeah. in, a, in a confined area, um, that's even bigger than, than you might have imagined. So I, I remember the day feeling like insanity. I mean, it was, I guess in the end, it was good insanity, but, but you know, it's a really difficult show to um, produce and do it responsibly because, you know, there are a lot of irresponsible producers out there um, around the world doing you know, shows often on lower budgets. I think in the United States, for the most part, they've been of a higher standard um, because the networks demand it for liability reasons and what have you. But ethically, I always feel like there's a responsibility to make sure we know what we're doing. But as much as you prepare for stuff, there's a lot of times in the real world where you can't predict what's going to happen. Right. Um, and so I think that was always at the forefront of my mind doing both those shows yeah. is the responsibility you have to make sure that as much as we want a great TV show, you want people to come out of the experience not only safe and sound, but feeling like they were treated in a way where it was at least fair and responsible and, and, and that they were you know, managed accordingly. So, so I think that, that was probably the thing that was at the forefront of my nerves, especially yeah. in those early early days well you bring up a really interesting point with even on survivor once you're on the island and once you've created a secure environment you you kind of create your own little world on that island but on amazing race the challenge that we had was we were out in the real world dealing with real world influences right uh so we were dealing with plane schedules and train schedules and you know if there was a protest in the street we were suddenly affected uh, by that but I remember having a conversation with you at the end of the very first leg and we were in Songwe village the sun was setting we were waiting for the teams and and I remember the, us talking about you know what if we just what if we just launched like what's just happened what's going to be that incredible yeah. excitement of the what's potential. excitement but the other thing a lot of that I, I don't think we really thought about even as we were doing it, but in hindsight is, you know, when we do challenges on Survivor or, or Big Brother, which is here on the studio a lot, you know, all those challenges are tested beforehand. Yes. By 
you know, extras essentially, or, or young college students or whatever, and they test the challenges to make sure they work, make sure the coverage, you know, works, um, that there's no hiccups in the game, that it all made sense, and, you yeah. know, and all that. We never tested the Amazing Race. It's not like we had a crew of people go run around the world and, and do a lot of this stuff. It's not like we get a bunch of kids and then put backpacks on them and have them go test it out so we can watch and see right you know, how what, it's going to play out. right and right. so if you actually watch the first season of the amazing race we got very lucky i mean a lot was figured out smartly but we also had some luck yes. again the reality gods because if you get to the latter episodes you realize there were two teams that as they were checking out of a certain pit stop to go on the next leg of the race the two teams behind them were only checking in yes so they were so far behind yes that even though as a viewer we played it so that you hope maybe by some miracle one of those two could jump back yeah, in. And get you a know, good The reality is there was no way at that point because they fell so far behind. Right. So that's all stuff you learn from. I mean, it, it's great that that was our biggest issue. Yes. I, and that it happened in the beginning because it would have really sucked if it happened in episode three or four and we had a ton of teams who could never get into the front again. Yeah. You know, so, so you learn from all of that. But the fact that we went off and did it without any major hitches is... It is remarkable. Pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, and again, hats off to everyone involved yeah, in producing Yeah, we had a, a fantastic team. And I remember being, I think it was episode four when we were in Tunisia. And and uh, Paul and... Amy. Amy, that's right, got lost in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> and we were all, you know, I mean, it was it's just the idea, like, what what do you mean? Like, these people are on our show and they're out in the desert. We, right. we're, and they're out on a camel somewhere. And, you know, <laughs> just, the, the, just the audacity of what, what season one was. And uh, as you know, I spoke to Robin Brennan yeah. and, and they were there for every ep, uh, episode, every leg as the winners. And we, you know, it was that same feeling that I got when I first heard about what Survivor was. It was like, wow, this is new and different. This is bold. This is big. Right. And here we are with Amazing Race. We've, we're now looking at uh, shooting, you know, season. We've just finished season 32 and it's going to be going on. So, I mean, it's crazy. I know. Think of how many people I know. Have, have been affected by that show in terms of just going through the experience that of it and, and the impact that it had on their lives, you know. And so, and uh, you, you you do have to feel lucky because I think in this day and age to pitch a show like Survivor or Amazing Race in this television environment would be very challenging. You Probably, know? I, I mean it's unfortunate because I think we need more visions out there and a willingness to take risks uh, on concepts that are fresh and different. Are we uh, being safe? Are our decisions the, the decisions being yeah, made safer? Yeah, I mean, safer? it's having been on both sides of the buying and the selling. It's yes. like constantly everyone's like, "Oh, we want something fresh. We can't keep doing derivative stuff." Right. And they all say that, and yet ninety nine percent of the time they end up doing derivative stuff, dialing it back into the center. Right. And, and look, going back to Survivor initially, I was a junior executive, but the one thing that also really made a big difference at CBS was that I had a relationship already with Les Moonves mm. because my mentor. A woman named Anita Addison, who was head of the drama development department, really sold me hard to Leslie and had me come to meetings and she would help me prepare so I could impress him in those meetings. So he had an open door and I was able to just walk in. Mm. In most other networks, w w which were passing on Survivor, it's that there's all the traditional chains of command, if you will. And a lot of smart people will tell you why everything can't work. The road that has to be traveled for a fresh idea down here 
to get up here has so many obstacles yeah. that I think there are a lot of great ideas that won't get up here. And sometimes it's because the people lower on the totem pole don't know how to sell them. Right. You know, so that's tough. It's, it's much not just easier to say, hey, I got a show from this executive producer that everyone knows. Yeah. So then they go, well, if it doesn't work, it wasn't our fault. It, you know, who would have guessed the, the guy had all these hits. Right. Or to sell a show that is already on the air, but with just a little bit of, it's amazing race, but it's teams of three, you mm -hmm. know? Anyone can sell that too. So I, I think it's unfortunate because I think we're missing out on potentially some cool stuff that could take television to another level and, and bring people together from all 50 states um, and tell fresh stories. And new universals, just like Amazing Race, doing pairs of people was the first time that was seen. I think there's other things we could be doing. Um, and, you know, we'll keep trying. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely tough to get it through. Um, and it's weird. It's tougher to get it through, even though I'm at a higher level, and, and all of us are than it was when we were at a junior level. Right. So you'd like to see more risks being taken? Just yeah, not just not stupid risks for the sake of risks, but risks that have some sort of a foundation behind them as to why this could actually work. And also to see executive producers who are passionate yeah. about what they're pitching. You know, and that's another problem in the reality world is that so often it's companies now that pitch stuff. And right. nothing against those companies. Some of them are great companies. But it's a bunch of executives who maybe weren't the best idea thinkers who came up with something and then this poor showrunner has to go figure out right. how to produce a show and then when it's very it succeeds, different from a Mark Burnett or Bertram right. walking in with real with passion. the actual you know and it was that way in the scripted world where you you know I was a drama exec and you'd look for writers and think that writer might have a hit mm. you know it, it's like they're not quite there but in two or three years the way they think they have a hit show in them and I kind of miss having that kind of conversation about who has a hit show in them you know um is so it easier it's, it's again tougher. to critique something and see the potential in something when it is written down in a script form as opposed to a reality because because no i think i think the best pitches are the ones where where you had me three minutes in because the reality is if you're pitching a show and the people are bored in the first five minutes the odds that at the end they're going to buy it are very small right usually they know in, usually in the first five minutes you're either with it or you aren't and if you're with it, it can, it can only go downhill from there. Yeah. But if you aren't, it rarely goes back up. So the best pitches are the ones, again, where someone comes in and says, I want to take 16 people and abandon them on a deserted island and make them fend for themselves. Yeah. And you go, wow, you know? And, or, or, and one by one, they vote each other off. And, and you literally sit there thinking, well, is this responsible to vote someone out that you're going to end the episode that way? Like right. usually television, not so long before, always ended on a happy smile. Yeah, you know, and is that mean? Is that like so? But you're asking all these questions because it's a really interesting it's idea. Thought provoking. Now you go, someone is eliminated at the end of the hour. It's like big deal. We've right. seen a million times. So you have to come up with new ways to new things to get people to go, huh? You yeah, know? make them make them think differently. Be more provocative with yeah. things. Yeah. Um, it, how do you stay connected with with sort of the zeitgeist? I guess, and and it, we live in Los Angeles. How do you stay connected with those people who turned up, say, in droves to watch Roseanne's show? Mm -hmm. Those people who suddenly saw themselves on a show like Roseanne and gravitated towards a show like that. Do you, you read a lot or do I you? I read a lot, but I don't think it's so much about, I, th I think it would take a lot of uh, gall for me to say I'm connected to people that I don't really know or whose life experiences I haven't at least observed, much right. less lived myself. But I think that you need to be open to different people. Um, 
and, and and I find people to be really fascinating. Like I said, I was a social psych major in college, so yeah. I find human behavior to be really interesting. How do you study um, human behavior, like on your daily, in you, just in your daily life? Are you constantly observing people? Do you? Yeah, you observe people by how they behave. I love to people watch when I'm in a foreign country. I'm much more interested in countries sometimes where they're so different. Yes, that even the taxi cab trip is just fascinating because a taxi cab driver is a character right you know so I, I tend to like stuff like that and I read a lot but I think it's also just being open to having sort of a respect for different people and different ways of thinking even if I may disagree with them but as opposed to saying I don't want you I don't want those people I don't you know so I think I think we need to do a better job of thinking how do we bring subject matter to people from all walks of life where I suspect it's such a universal at its core that people who whose experiences I may not know will still understand and connect with that sort of universal truth. Um, and then you try to also get people behind the scenes with different ideas. You know, there's nothing better than like having a general idea or a general thought as to how something should be done and having someone else on the team because of their experiences or, or their intellectual power or what have you one up you and make it better. Like, you know, sometimes as executives, you, you kind of get into this rut where you say something and everyone just does what you say. Right. And, and you don't it's want a that. nice ego boost. But like that's if 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 I'm coming up with the best ideas every single time, then there's something wrong. You know, yeah. like I, I only have I, I may have experience to be able to point out why we should do this this way or that that way. But I'm much more excited when someone says, you know, I get what you're saying, but here's an even better way. Yeah, to be challenged um, on your ideas and to and, and to have a good, yeah. healthy debate about and bring their sensibilities. I, I, I think it was just fascinating to me to see the incredible response that Roseanne's show got. And wh wh how was that missed? Why there, should there be more shows that are? Yeah, there should be. I mean, it's it's amazing that after <clears throat> that show, there aren't more shows. That, <clears throat> That's that what like I that, thought. You know? I, I thought there would have been a sudden influx of, oh wow, look what Roseanne did. Why are we not speaking to these? Right, and if you people. look at the shares that some of the bigger cities, for instance, in the South, yeah. Um, and Ohio had some crazy had got on television for, for Roseanne. It's like the numbers were unbelievable. But Mind again, blowing. and I think the thing the show did so successfully is it showed people different points of views and showed that they can still be a family. Yeah. And it wasn't condescending and it wasn't preaching and it wasn't saying, gee, you're a bad person or you're you're this or that because you think this way. And I think people forget that even all in family back in the day, yes. you know, for all the you know, like yelling at the top of their lungs on politics and what have you between Archie and the meathead. Yeah. In the end, they were still a family that yeah. loved each other. Deep love. And yeah. I don't think you see that today. To me, the power of entertainment is finding those common, finding common ground. Like you said before, that families at the end of the day, wherever they are in America, whoever they vote for, whatever their, their beliefs are, Families inherently care about their kids. They care about putting food on the table. They care about education. Right. There's those those little nuggets, those storytelling nuggets, if you like, seem to be getting missed. It's we seem to be going to the extreme sides of what we don't agree on. Yeah, I think I think I don't have a problem hearing what we don't agree on, but I'm more interested in a at least a respectful conversation about it, yeah. rather than an outright shunning of one side or or outright condescension or in some cases outright misrepresentations of truth um and so that to me is where where 
I think media has to, has to be playing a better responsibility, but my area is really more in entertainment. Yes. And again, I'd like to do shows that everybody can watch together, and I think there's plenty of shows. I mean, great shows on broadcast history from Lost and Desperate Housewives to CSI and Survivor and The Amazing Race and, you know, um, sh shows that, Big again, brother. brought people together, yeah. you know? And I think we need to go back to figuring out how, in spite of our difference, can we pull people together and still be a unit of some sort, just the way that the bunkers, you yeah, know, in all in the family were, and 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 the Connors and in the Roseanne show were, um, and that's the thing that I think was so cool about Roseanne is it wasn't suddenly, gee, they're just going to go tell a different point of view you don't often see from Hollywood because it actually had a mixed point of view itself. Yes, but what it did show was at least a respect for people who had different opinions and and a, and a love between them. Yeah, that I think. America would like to see a lot more of, um, and so so yeah, I think I think that would be a great example of a show where uh, I wish more shows would try to, on a very sincere level, sort of like tell the stories and love the characters. You know, you loved Archie Bunker whether you thought he was he saying was silly or things or yeah. not. You know, and you know, and in the end, he was the guy putting the roof over the meatheads. You know, yeah, head. So it's like. So you had to respect him on some level when Edith actually pulled the meat out aside and, and said, he's the one that's working. You know, you're going to school, you're going to amount to so much more than he ever will, but he's the one that's putting food on so the table right now. So part of him. And you need to, you know? Yeah. And so I think, I think sometimes we need a little more of that, um, and it would be great if television could do that. So tell us what your current position is right now. You're working with uh, CBS Television Studios, and you have a yeah. very big title. Yeah. I believe it's Executive <laughs> Vice President, correct? Something like that. Yeah. Um, senior executive vice president. Oh, senior executive <laughs> vice president. I'm sorry, I forgot <laughs> that one. Um, but you've got a couple of projects that I that I've uh, managed to catch up on. Um, yeah. First of all, uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Um, yeah. So we just did this reboot at uh, Fox, and it was a lot of fun because that's another show that when I was that assistant sitting in the cubicle, yeah, I used to watch every episode of. And in fact, I started watching that show before I even got into television. Um, and so it's cool that to, all these years later to to have some association with that legacy and yeah. by bringing the cast back together. Um, but what we wanted to do was a show that was different from just another predictable reboot. Yeah. Um, and the idea was to do a fully scripted show now. So again, it's sort of like scripted. I started in scripted and then went to reality. And if you watched some of the television, they're soft scripted, which is kind of reality, but they sort of soft scripted. And this was what I was sort of at the time calling hard scripted reality where it's a full out scripted show, but inspired in part by who these people are. So they were playing themselves um, with a little bit of a wink. Yeah. Um, and what I loved about the show and, and what the cast, and I think they're a fantastic cast and, and you got to see their, them as actors doing different things that you wouldn't have seen in the original show, but they were also willing to poke fun at themselves. And there's nothing more that I think America likes than to see people, you know, self-deprecating, self-deprecate and, and look at themselves as humans as opposed to look how great we are because we're a bunch of celebrities. Yeah. Some flaws. Um, and, <laughs> and it was it was really cool. And, and I think it got a really good response because of that. And yeah, really I enjoyed it. It, it. For me, it was um, like it was nice to go down memory lane and, yeah. you know, hear that theme music again. And yeah, it was all of that. But it was also just the unexpected fun of, oh, wait, it's not. Brandon and Brenda and, 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 and that gang, although we had little dream sequences that would be a homage to those those old characters within the show. 
but rather it's Tori Spelling and Jason Priestley and Jenny Garth and, and Brian Austin Green and, the, and all of them as themselves um, in stories where some of it is inspired by real life, some of it is sort of an exaggeration of what people think may be their real lives, and some of it is just total BS. But the fun of the show is trying to figure out kind of what's what and getting to know them on a on a different level. So again, I love television where we're trying to do different things. Tori Spelling came in and pitched to you. Tori Spelling and Jenny Garth. And Jenny Garth came in. And and uh, and, and then you ended and up. And I worked with Tori once before when I was at NBC. Oh, okay. So we had that prior relationship, and it's kind of a cool story because my dad was an actor when he was really young, oh. and Aaron Spelling cast him in a play here in Los Angeles. And I used to hear stories about how Aaron Spelling would take my dad around, you know, the neighborhood for walks and stuff when he was a young kid and give him advice and all of really? that. Really? So it's kind of cool to come yeah. full circle all these years later uh, with Tori. Well, and then you ended up with a, a bidding war and then Fox felt like the best home? Yeah. And they did the original, of course, too. And they also really stepped up to the plate. So it so. just seemed the perfect synergy. And then you've also got another reboot, right? With uh, Kids Yeah, Say Kids the Say the Nardest Things with Tiffany Haddish, who is amazing in the show. Yeah, tell us about um, Tiffany. So Tiffany is like what we call a huge gap, you know, yes. for, for the television world. I think her sort of star is only rising higher in, in the movie world. Um, but, I, th you know, she has incredible empathy for kids you know so in addition to being very funny and all the stuff that you're expecting from you know a, a comedian leading leading a show like this i think she comes at it from such a different way because she has such a connection to these kids and she talks openly about her own experiences as a kid mm. um and, and and so when i think when you watch the show you, what's great is how she brings out the personalities of children again from all walks of life um and their point of view um, and allows them to sort of say what they're thinking. And, and, and I think it's, again, it's a unifying type of show that I think hopefully everyone from all walks of life will, will like. So it's on ABC this fall. Um, and and, and we had a bidding war on that one too. Oh, you um, did? That's good. And uh, yeah, so and I'm excited by it. And for those people who don't know that show, I mean, it obviously has been around for a long time. But yeah, Art Linkletter originally did it on a show called House Party on CBS. I think it was like the last five minutes of the show many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's basically kids and their point of view. But a lot of it is, is where the host is asking interesting questions and you're hearing what a kid thinks. And sometimes you'll get real wisdom from a kid. And sometimes it's just very funny. But it's almost like a show for adults that kids can watch, but you can also then watch it with your own kids. And I think it plays on one level to kids of the same age and then to people who are older. It plays on a different level. Well, that's one um, of the things I love about Amazing Race is I get stopped all the time right? and by families and they'll say, oh, Phil, we love Amazing Race. It's the one f show that our family can sit down and watch together. And the idea that you've got a grandkid sitting with a grandparents and the whole, all the generations sitting there, that goes back to what you talked about before, where making a show where you know you're bringing everybody to the screen right. to, to share in that experience at a time where we're becoming more fragmented and niche. No, and, and so we're talking, trying to unify 50 <clears throat> states, but I think a show like Amazing Race or hopefully could say the darnest things almost is more unifying within the home. Mm. Um, because again, adults and kids can watch a show together and maybe both appreciate it in different ways. So. so what do you see is going to happen with the television landscape if you could like, look into the crystal ball. I mean, you've, you've been a part of changing the television landscape 20 something years ago. Uh, 
where do you see it sort of going? What, what do you think, if we talk to you in five years, where are we going to be? Um, yeah, I think, I think the choices will continue, but I think we're going to have to force ourselves into figuring out how to get a mass viewership again for shows. And, and I think, you know, hopefully some of the shows that launch this fall will do that. Um, but I guess my hope is that we will once again bring on new, fresh visions, shows like Survivor was or Lost was, um, that again has appealed to everybody from all walks of life and bring people together. I mean, that's my hope. Um, but with all the different choices out there, there's always going to be something for everyone. Um, it's just a matter of what's the largest audience that you can get for a show, because at some point these shows cost a lot of money, and if your audience is too small on certain platforms, it may may be harder to sustain. So I think it's going to be partly of, because of an economic reason that you're going to try to get large viewers again together. But I'm also hopeful that it will be a, a good thing for the country to bring people together again. Again, do you think that the networks as we know them now will also be very different, meaning there'll be more networks will be more about news and sport and that the entertainment will get spread out into... I think when you have a great show, people are going to come watch. I mean, look at The Walking Dead. Yeah, you were involved in, in that, weren't you? Well, very early on, we developed it at NBC. Yes. Um, I left NBC and then it got passed on later. Yes. But um, it went to um, AMC, which, you know, nobody was watching. I mean, AMC had some some hit shows in terms of small shows that, that were getting critical acclaim, but it yep. wasn't a mass viewership place. And then on Little AMC, that show gets blockbuster ratings. Yeah. Um, and Empire, the first season on, on Fox, got yeah. amazing ratings, you know? Um, like huge thing numbers that people thought were not possible anymore. Anymore, yeah. So again, I think when you come up with a show that has what I say is broad appeal, meaning that people from all walks of life will find it really compelling, and, and it's a fun show, you know? It, it's one that's really entertaining. Um, and there's something fresh at its core. I think I think you can bring people together. On a personal level, thank you for letting me be involved in Amazing Race from way back when. <laughs> Whatever well, influence you, you had it, it in was, having it me fun. pick. It was fun. And 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 thanks for uh, bringing some really interesting reality shows thanks. into into the world, um, helping to facilitate that. That's really cool. Um, and and I would love to get you back in say five years, and we'll see where we're at. Okay, <laughs> and I'd love to speak to Tiffany. By the way, I think that'd be really cool. Uh, to, you know, to talk about kids say the uh -huh. darndest things. Um, again, I I normally end the the podcast with a couple of questions. Okay, uh, your uh, a trip across America, a road trip across America with three passengers in your car. I'm interested in who you would take. You could take anybody from any time in history, um, and I'm interested in who you'd want to travel oh, with. Phil. <laughs> Now I get, now I'm under pressure. Three people I'd want to travel with? Can be anybody. Okay, no, so think about that for <laughs> a second. And then, and, and, and then uh, I'll ask you the, this question. Your last day on earth again, like what is the perfect day for you? What would you want to do with your last day on earth if you knew you were living it out? I have to be honest, like there would have been a time, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love life and I want to live as long as possible. But if it were to end tomorrow, I actually think, it, I would I wouldn't have any regrets like I, I feel very fortunate that it's not so much gee what do I want to do on that last day because I've kind of done so much 
So you're a happy guy. And so, yeah, so it, it, it's, that's, that's an easier question to answer. Then um, who you take than, in the car. Might, then it might have been 10 or 15 years ago. So, Well, well is, but is there, you know? a, as far as the car question goes, is there a world champion poker player that you'd love to be able to spend I don't know. Some time I think, with? no, no, no. I, I, I like playing poker, but that wouldn't be my choice. No. I don't know. I think I'd probably actually, rather than choose like historic figures and whatever, I think I'd probably choose people that um, had a big impact on me at some point who are no longer with us mm -hmm. because I'd like to sort of get their point of view about stuff yeah. now. So I would say Anita Addison, yep. the mentor that I mentioned, is one. There's also a professor named Roger Brown who was uh, a mentor at Harvard uh, in social psychology. Yep. Um, and I think at the time he was considered the foremost social psychologist still alive. Um, and, and, and the type of person that, you know, a lot of professors in college didn't like the fact that I would always bring up television because I love to bring up television in the context of psychology classes. I wrote all sorts of papers on television, but my point of view on television wasn't what all the academics back then would do, which is basically Sesame Street is good and sex and violence on television is bad. Mm. And that was all that's worth studying. I actually would sit there and say, what are the pro-social effects of Dallas and Knott's Landing? Mm. You know, or how do I get a mass audience to watch something and they have in common? I remember one professor who's now, I think, the president of a certain uh, university, but she was uh, at Harvard at the time and then was head of the ed school at Harvard, telling me that what I was trying to pursue or study was beneath the time of a student at Harvard, and I was just trying to justify my own viewing habits. Wow. But Roger Brown, I remember, wrote once to someone that I, I was the type of person that would pursue things in spite of some not very supportive people. That always meant a lot. Mm. And the funny thing is that years later at MIT, I was invited to speak at a panel with a bunch of academics. And a lot of the things I said to the group was exactly what I said as a college student, except I got quoted in textbooks afterwards because now that I'm in television. Yeah, you proved yourself. And, and it seems like there's an academic study that is more open to this, this area than yeah. perhaps back then. So I think Roger Brown would be someone I'd love. It, what was really sad is that um, he died like I, th I think it's probably a few years before Survivor came on. Mm, so he never got. But he would have loved to watch that show. Uh. Um, and so I would have. So I think he would be one. Um, Anita Addison would be another. And I don't know. I have to think of. You don't have to a take third three. Person. You could just take. Maybe two. I'll take you. Oh, I'll, I'd you love know? to go. Yeah, I think it'd be fascinating <laughs> you conversation. Can ask, you can ask them some interesting questions. and. Uh, <laughs> well, every time we have a conversation, it does yeah. tend to go on for so. a long time because it's always fascinating. Yeah. Again, thank you right. so much. Pleasure. Thank really, you for having really me. Really appreciate, appreciate you it. taking the time because okay. you're you're right in the middle of shooting something, right? You've literally run over from a shoot. Yeah, we're shooting uh, some pieces for our kids. Say uh, the darnest fall, thing. So, um, just uh, doing that, but this was a nice break and yeah, yeah, fun to do. I hope you get a chance to get some lunch before you get back to work. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Thank you again. Thank you. Appreciate it. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To see more great interviews. Go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Kogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us. And follow Bucket, that's Bucket with an IT, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Phil Kogan. Today's podcast proudly brought to you by Bucket Nutrition. Great tasting, high performance nutrition to power your adventure. Don't forget to go to Amazon.com, search for Bucket Nutrition, and use promo code BUCKET10, that's bucket with an IT, 
and you'll get a 10% discount on all Bucket Nutritional products. Just wait until you try the Bucket Booster with Manuka Honey. Thank you.